most of you know that we're going through the Gospel of John, and we try to go verse by verse, which is known as expository preaching. But today, the message will be a little different. It'll be topical in nature. So instead of breaking down each verse, these verses in John will sort of be a launching pad of where we're going to go in the message. I've entitled the message this morning, There's a Pharisee in All of Us. And I don't say that lightly or nonchalantly. I want us to seriously consider, examine where we struggle with being a Pharisee. And how God rescues us with His grace. So let's open our Bibles to John 5, verses 9 through 12. John 5, verses 9 through 12, which is review from last week. But I want us to look at this section with a different focus, looking at it from a different angle, if you will. I want us to put our attention on the religious leaders, the Jews, the Pharisees in this message. God's holy, inerrant, infallible word says this, Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath. It's not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? As we begin, let's go to our Lord in prayer. Holy Father, we praise you for another day to be able to glorify you, Father. May we at the family church make much of Christ, only Christ, all the time, Father. Whether it's in our homes, whether it's in our workplace, whether it's when we're having fun, Father, help Christ to be at the forefront of our minds and being led by the power of the Spirit. We ask that you give us wisdom. Help us to see where we struggle with being a Pharisee. In Christ's name we pray, amen. So the Jews, better known here as the Pharisee, sees a man carrying his mat and tells the guy, you can't carry your mat on the Sabbath. I mean, in reality, what was this guy thinking? He must have forgot. He must have not realized what day it was. I know, I know he just got healed, right? And he was probably praising God because if we look back in the passages, he was paralyzed for 38 years years and he's probably amazed at the fact that he's now healed able to walk but i mean really couldn't he have waited to pick up his mat on a different day man but we can breathe a sigh of relief we can relax because the pharisees were there to save the day once again they were there to remind this paralyzed man who was healed, that it was unlawful to carry your mat on the Sabbath. And then we recognize also, as we read further in the next coming weeks, they also help Jesus out and and let him know he's not allowed to be healing people on the Sabbath. You can't do something like that. Verse 10 says this, So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath. It's not lawful for you to take up your bed and walk. So the question is, Were the Jews right? Were the Pharisees correct in their assessment? Was it really unlawful to carry your mat, your bed, on the Sabbath? 
I think for us to answer that question, let's look back at Exodus 20, verses 8 through 10. And this is part of the Ten Commandments where God's Word talks about the Sabbath requirements and what needs to happen on the Sabbath. And it says this in Exodus 20, 8 through 10. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but on the seventh day is a Sabbath to, this, to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. So the Sabbath was a day of rest from working, from your daily grind, from your employment that you were used to working at, probably outside the home. But also those that were in the home that worked full time were supposed to take some breaks from their daily chores as well and dedicate that time specifically wholly to the Lord. This passage reveals that the man who was carrying his mat wasn't actually breaking God's law, God's word. Nor will we see later on was Jesus when he was healing on the Sabbath either. But the Pharisees had added their own commandments on top of God's word. And that's where the man and later Jesus was breaking their rules, their man-made traditions. Richard Phillips said this, the Pharisees developed an elaborate set of rules that would ensure that no one would break the Sabbath. The word work seemed a little vague to them, so they added 39 categories of activities that constituted work. For example, work was defined in specific terms like this. They couldn't walk over a thousand feet at a time. Or, obviously, you couldn't wear your false teeth on the Sabbath because what would happen if, it fell, if they fell out? Well, you would be tempted to pick them up and put them back in, right? Which, to the Pharisees and the scribes, that would have been considered work from their definition, so the Pharisees were the religious police ready to pounce on anyone who would break their man-made rules, their man-made commands, which leads to point number one. The Pharisees added their own man-made commands to God's Word. The Pharisees added their own man-made commands to God's Word. You may be thinking, well, it's a good thing we're in the New Testament, we're Christians, we don't have to worry about those old Pharisees anymore, we don't add our own rules or regulations to God's Word, we just follow the Bible. And I say amen to that, but truth be known, adding human traditions or man-made rules to God's Word is always a temptation, and we are naive to think that we can't fall into the same problems that they did. What would be some modern-day examples of making man-made traditions into rules and commands? We can look at certain churches or denominations that don't allow leaders to be married. When Scripture clearly says that pastors, elders, can be married and have children. Or we have many who believe that drinking is wrong when Scripture clearly says that it's sinful to get drunk, not have a drink. But let me stop here for a minute because obviously if we struggle with alcoholism, we should avoid drinking because it leads to drunkenness, which the scripture says 
is sinful, right? But to make a hard, fast rule for everyone and act like Christians can't drink is not following God's word. It's making man-made rules. Or we have others that talk about certain instruments aren't okay to use during worship service. Some churches don't allow drums or guitars in their surfaces. Scripture does not specify what instruments you can and cannot use in service. But we do know this. It's clear on the attitude that we should take as we are praising our Lord in song, that we should have a reverent heart, that we should be full of joy and celebrate and lift up and exalt Christ. Amen? I know many of us have grown up in churches, including myself, that emphasize altar calls. And altar calls can be beneficial at times, but again, Scripture does not command them, nor does Scripture even say anything about altar calls. Altar calls started in the 1700s during the great revivals in America. Again, altar calls are not commanded. They're not something we have to do, but they're sometimes a great option to have, and some churches may or may not practice altar calls. But it seems a lot of people, including us sometimes, hold on to traditions of men because they have the mentality that says, that's just how we've always done it, right? But again, what are we used to, what we're comfortable with, what we see in our church experience has to line up with the Word of God and the Word of God alone. But let me say on a side note, I love traditions. I love having our traditions. But we can't make human traditions into commands or rules or regulations. That's elevating these human traditions up to the Word of God, which that's what the Pharisees were guilty of doing. Well, let's go back to our passage. And we're in John 5, verses 10 through 12. And it says this, So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It's the Sabbath. It's not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? So let me ask you a question this morning. How concerned were the Pharisees with the fact that this man had been paralyzed for 38 years and now he was healed. How concerned were they for this man? Let's look back again in verses 11 and 12. And specifically 12, because that's when they speak. But it says this in 11. But he answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. They asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? How compassionate were the Pharisees? How merciful were the Pharisees? How loving was the Pharisees to this man? The religious leaders didn't even flinch at the fact that this man was healed, that this man who was paralyzed for 38 years was now able to walk. They didn't even ask, who was this man who healed you? Instead, they only cared about the fact that their man-made rules were once again broken. And this is why they say this, who is this man who said to you, take up your bed? And walk, which leads to point number two. The Pharisees majored on the minors and minored on the majors. Point number two says the Pharisees 
majored on the minors and minored on the majors. That's why Jesus said in Matthew 23, 23, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are careful, careful to tithe even the tiniest income from your herb gardens, but you ignore the more important aspects of the law, justice, mercy, and faith. You should tithe, yes, but do not neglect the more important things. So Jesus says, you ignore the most important aspects of God's Word. And you focus on the minor issues. You put all of your energy on being faithful to the less important, less weightier matters. But we see the Pharisees had no mercy. They didn't rejoice over the man who had been healed. They didn't praise God. They didn't encourage this man at all. No, the only thing they cared about was the fact that the man was carrying his mat on the Sabbath. I wonder if we can relate, if we can see the Pharisee within ourselves. I mean, I know I can, honestly. I grew up in a very religious home. I wrestled with minor, minor doctrines, minor religious doctrines and issues, and ignored the more weightier matters, more important ones in my early years. In my Teenage years, I remember being focused. I'm sure you guys were focused on this too as a teenager. I used to think about, am I allowed to raise my hands during worship? I don't know if I should do that. Or should I read from the NIV Bible? Or is it okay for men to have long hair? Or is it okay for women to have short hair? That was the type of issues I was wrestling with as a teenager. What I was focused on, and yet I didn't care about people. I didn't love people. I was totally self-absorbed. I didn't know how sinful I was, and I definitely didn't understand God's grace. But I could tell you what verses were going to tell you how long your hair should be. That's absurd. That's absurd. I was what you'd call a modern-day Pharisee. I would go around and talk about these issues with everyone. It wasn't, let me love you, let me help you, let me serve you, but let me tell you about what you need to know. Let me enlighten you with the agendas that I have. Let me show you the way of God, because I know it. The Pharisees can't see beyond themselves. They usually struggle with being merciful or graceful towards others because they are so focused on themselves. They are the authority in their minds on all theological issues in every conversation that they have. It is as if the Pharisee thinks he or she has extra knowledge they are above everyone else. They look at themselves as closer to God, have more depth, more wisdom, more insight. They conclude that they are just more mature in their faith than everyone else. That's why they act the way they do. So their thoughts, their actions, their words are always more important than yours. So the question is, how would we diagnose someone who struggles with what I would call Phariseeism or the Pharisee disorder, right? Well, if we looked at the Pharisee from the world of psychology, we may conclude that the Pharisee maybe just had a tough childhood, a bad upbringing, right? Or maybe the Pharisee just had a wounded heart 
And he's not allowed to be his true or authentic self. Or maybe we just conclude that the Pharisee has bad genetics and he needs some type of medication. But Scripture, on the other hand, gives us altogether different diagnosis. Scripture gives us the real problem of the Pharisee. Scripture does not blame their parents, nor does God's word say the problem is a wounded heart. Scripture says that they have a sinful heart. The problem lies within themselves. Which leads to point number three. The Pharisee's problem was sin from within. The Pharisee's problem was sin from within. Listen to what Jesus says when he's talking to his disciples after a run-in with the Pharisees in Mark 7, 18 through 23. He says this, And he, that is Jesus, said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from the outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things come from within, and this is what defiles a person. So Jesus tells the disciples who are totally influenced by the Pharisees, it's not what's outside of you is what the problem It's what's inside of you is your problem. It's what makes you sinful. Jesus says it's it's what's inside. Jesus says out of your own heart comes all sorts of wickedness. You don't need something outside of you to taint you. Just listen to yourself. I mean, think about it. Think about some of the thoughts that you've had this week. Jesus' point is the enemy lives within us not outside of us. This would have floored the religious people of the Jesus' day because they thought they were good, that they were the holy ones, that they were better than everyone else. We can remember the Pharisee who was standing next to the tax collector in Luke 18, and he starts praying and says, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, right? extortioners, unjust adulterers, or even like this tax collector, right? It's ironic because this man who was full of himself was worse than the people he thought he was better than. It's ironic. Proverbs 26.12 tells us, do you see a man who is wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than for him. Point number four, Pharisees' hearts were full of pride. The Pharisees' hearts were full of pride. Pride oozed out of their heart. Jesus describes the heart of the Pharisee when he said they honored God with their lips, but their heart was far from him. There wasn't any room for God in their hearts because they were too busy honoring themselves, trying to gain more power, more prestige. Pride ruled their hearts. When pride controls us, we can't love God or others because we are too busy loving ourselves. That's why Satan rebelled against God. Satan didn't want to worship God. He himself wanted to be his own God. He loved himself more than anything else, including God himself. 
What caused the whole human race to fall into sin? The answer is pride. Pride. In the beginning, God told Adam he could eat from any tree in the garden, any one of them except one, the tree of good and evil. And in Genesis 3, 5, Satan is talking with Eve, and he's trying to get her to eat from the tree, and he tempts her by saying this, for God knows that when you eat of it, that is from the fruit, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So Satan here is saying to Eve, while Adam is listening, by the way, the fruit you eat will make you be like God. The temptation was to be God, to be autonomous, to live for self instead of have to live for God. We talk about the dangers of sexual sin. We talk, we think about the bondage of addictions. We think about the atrocities of murder. We get frustrated with lying lips. We see the destruction of divorce in many people's lives. We see the clarity of so many sins that go on in others' lives and ours, but the worst of all sins, pride, often goes unnoticed. We're often blinded to it. It's said that pride is the root of all other sins. Thomas Watson said, pride seeks to un-God, God. I wonder if we can see the sin of pride still reigning in our own hearts today. Stuart Scott says this, the question is not do I have pride, but the question is where is it and how much of it do I have? C.S. Lewis once said this, if you want to find out how proud you are, the easiest way is to ask yourself, how much do I dislike it when other people snub me, refuse to take any notice of me, patronize me, or show off? The point is, is that each other's Pride is in competition with the other person. So C.S. Lewis is saying here that our pride reacts to other people's pride. In essence, our pride is set off by other people's pride. So you may be thinking here, I'm still not sure I really struggle with pride. I'm not sure about this whole pride thing. I don't think I'm like this know-it-all or like these Pharisees. Well, let's look at some other examples, some other ways that pride veers its ugly head in our lives, some examples of how pride is played out in our daily life. And these examples that I, that I found are in Stuart Scott's book, Exemplary Husband, which is by far the best book to be a godly husband, and it's the toughest and most thorough book as well. It's very humbling, but it's a great book for everybody to read. Um, but it says this in the section he gives the examples. And the first example, you might be prideful, number one, if you lack gratitude. You might be prideful if you lack gratitude. Pride, pe proud people usually think they deserve what is good. The result is they see no reason to be thankful for what they get because they think they deserve it. Number two, you might be prideful if you are easily angered. You might be prideful if you are easily angered. A proud person most often becomes angry because his or her supposed rights or expectations are not being met. Number three, you might be prideful if you talk too much. You might be prideful if you talk too much. Proud people who talk too much often do it because they think 
that what they say is more important than what everyone else has to say. Number four, you might be prideful if you have an inflated view of your importance, your gifts, and your abilities. Many proud people have a wrong perception of themselves. They need a loving dose of reality. They need to hear, what do you have that God has not given to you? Number five, you might be prideful if you are a perfectionist. You might be prideful if you are a perfectionist. People who strive for everything to be perfect often do so for recognition or to feel good about themselves. This behavior is self-serving and prideful. Number six, you might be prideful if you're focused on the lack of your gifts and abilities. Let me say that again. You might be prideful if you are focused on the lack of your gifts and abilities. Some proud people may not come across as proud because they are down on themselves. In reality, the reason why they're down on themselves is because they think they should be better, that they should be elevated to a different status so they aren't content in the present circumstances they are in. Again, that's prideful. As we can see in our hearts come out, pride comes out in different forms and different ways, and there's numerous other examples I could have given, but we can see with the Pharisees, they lack compassion for others. They had an inflated view of themselves, they were reactive, they were defensive, they loved to be honored, and they thought they were so good. But I ask us this morning, how do we struggle with pride? What situations do we face that causes pride to rise up, to well up within us, within our own hearts? The next question is, what is the answer to being prideful, having a prideful heart, a prideful attitude? Where can we find hope in dealing with this sin of pride? Well, I would start by asking, what's the opposite of pride? And the answer, of course, is humility, right? Humility. But again, what is humility? Well, humility is not a personality trait, nor is it something that we learn, nor is humility natural to us. Humility is unique. It's supernatural. It's a fruit. It's a virtue. It becomes who we are as the Holy Spirit transforms us from the inside out. A humble person focuses on God and others instead of self. Which leads to point number five. A humble person has the right view of themselves. A humble person has the right view of self. What is the right view of self? Especially living in a society that applauds pride, that thinks much of self, that lifts up the arrogant, that is controlled by Satan. It's no wonder that humility is a lost virtue in our society. But it seems even in the church, humility is a lost jewel. It seems many churches have set the Bible down and have decided to chase after other things of this world by teaching things like self-esteem, which is a form of pride, which causes us to become more self-focused, more self-oriented, more built up in the flesh instead of dying to self, instead of being out of the bondage of self and being able to worship and glorify the Lord. 
I think the best way, the clearest way to understand humility is for us to look at Christ, our perfect example of what humility is. Let's look at Philippians 2, 5 through 11. Why don't you turn with me there to Philippians 2, 5 through 11. This is Paul the Apostle talking to the church at Philippi who are struggling with pride. And he tells them to have this, to, to follow Christ's example. And he says this, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen? Jesus is the perfect picture of humility, of what it means to submit to God, to follow Christ. He made himself nothing. It says he actually literally emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, was mistreated, beaten, and finally sacrificed for who? For us. For us. The gospel destroys the goodness that we think we have. The gospel shines the light on the arrogant hearts that we often have. The gospel reminds us that the sin that we struggle with has such a hold on us, but the gospel does not leave us helpless. The gospel gives us hope in the midst of the struggle that we have with pride. The gospel shows us life. The gospel gives us freedom from self. The gospel opens our eyes to the beauty, to the greatness, to the wonder, to the majesty of Christ Jesus. Are we in awe of the gospel this morning? Are we in awe of Christ Jesus, our Lord? Well, in conclusion, last Wednesday, I was playing with my boys, and I said to them, not really thinking, I was just talking, that always gets me in trouble, but I said to them, you know, guys, I think your daddy's probably the toughest, the strongest, the coolest daddy around. And my five-year-old, Luke, looked at me and said, Daddy, you're being prideful. <laughs> Forgive me. He says, it's not good to act that way, Daddy. It was sort of a weird moment because I was proud and convicted at the same time. I thought, that's my little biblical counselor. But then I thought, he's only five and he sees my wicked heart. What's going to happen at ten? I was reminded that pride does not die easy. It's a battle and it'll continue to be a battle as long as we are in this tent, the flesh. Pride does not die once. Pride has to be fought daily. As Christ said, to pick up our cross daily. There's a Pharisee in all of us, but I wonder if we see that Pharisee this morning. I wonder if we see the pride that continues to rise up out of us in our hearts when we're at home, or when we're driving our car, or when we're in conflict with our spouse, or when we're at work, or when we're just thinking in our own mind, 
do we see the pride? Pride is often our pet sin, the sin we consider most innocent, the sin that we love most, but in reality, pride is the most dangerous of all sins, especially for those of us that are Christians. What is the cure? What's the answer to such a disease? Where is our hope found? What is the way out of bondage of pride? And of course, the simple answer is Christ. It's always Christ. Do we know Christ this morning? Have we turned to Christ in repentance and faith? In Christ, we begin to bear new fruit. Instead of being filled with only pride, we start growing differently and we start growing in things like humility. I would ask you, if you're a believer, do you repent of the sin of pride? Do you actually look at pride as a real sin in your life? And I would ask you, what are ways that we are all growing in humility as brothers and sisters in Christ? I want us to end by listening to Paul, the apostle, wrestling with sin And hopefully this will humble us as we think about the Apostle Paul and how he looked at him himself. This is Romans 7, 18 through 25. And he says this, For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want. But the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. So if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find, to, so I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells within my members." Wretched man that I am. Present tense, as the Apostle Paul. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. Paul does not say I'm getting better. I will defeat sins like pride in my life. He does not say he's becoming such a good person. No, he holds on to the fact that his only hope is Christ. Paul sees how ugly his sin really is. Paul struggles with this sin so much. But it causes him, as he sees himself clearly, to actually hold on all the more to Christ because he knows he can't trust himself. When we have the right view of who we are, we won't just try harder. I just got to try harder. But turn to Christ, recognizing the darkness, the sin that still reigns from within and fall on our knees, broken over our sin. And we start depending on Christ, reveling in his grace that freely we receive as brothers and sisters in Christ. And we get to forget about self altogether. May we die to self. May we die to pride and live for Christ. Let's go to our Lord in prayer. Holy Father, as we think about pride and humility, sort of out of date terms in our society and most churches, Father, help us to 
just really grow in these areas of our lives by the power of your Spirit. Help us not to let the worst of sins go in our lives. Be so consumed with other things in our lives when pride is what caused the whole human race to fall into sin. Help us to be sensitive. Let your Spirit work on our hearts and convict us of our sinfulness, of our prideful hearts. And that doesn't mean to let go of the truth. That means to hold on to the truth all the more because we can actually deal with the sins in our lives, but help it to cause us to run to your grace and be in awe of your grace, recognizing that we will battle sin till the day we die. Help us to be humble people. Help us to be people who aren't focused and consumed with ourselves. Help us to be consumed with Christ. Help us to be consumed with other people. Help us to be consumed with serving and loving other people instead of ourselves. Help us to be those type of people. We recognize the only way we can do that is through your Holy Spirit working on our hearts. In Christ's name we pray, amen.